Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. You can find it on page 200, or 539 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. We're coming at last to the end of our series on the book of Proverbs. We've been in Proverbs for a while, and though there's many, many other themes that we could explore in this book, um, it just by now we ought to have a foothold on wisdom, or at least where to go, how to apply wisdom. But we need to finish things up by thinking about wisdom for planning. How do we have wise plans? I'm sure that all of us at some point in our lives have looked up to the sky, we've raised our hands up, and we've asked God that all-important question, God, what is your will for my life? What do you want me to do in this situation? How how can I live in such a way as to please you, as as to have your favor? How can I know what you want me to do? How do I know that my plans will be established as I think about maybe this move or this job or who this person that I should marry? It can be very confusing for us to know what the Lord wants us to do at any given time. And then you add to that the potential for error, the potential for folly, the potential for sin. I mean, have you ever made decisions that you've come to later regret? Have you ever questioned um, your decisions, anxiously wondering whether or not it was wise or foolish? Have, Have you ever recognized that, you know what, that decision, that was sin, that was folly, and you don't even know really how to correct the mistake? How can we know that we've made the right decision and that that decision won't come back to haunt us? And then there's the question of how do you even go about making plans or making decisions? I mean, do you look for signs, sort of open doors from the Lord, just kind of sit back and wait, and then passively, when something shows up, then you just kind of walk through it? Do you listen for a word from the Lord? Do you have this inner peace about it? Or do you go all Disney, right? You just go with it, you trust your gut, you follow your heart, you let your conscience be your guide. Do our feelings dictate what is right? You know, we've all been there. When faced with big decisions, we've all looked for some compelling sense of affirmation, some verification, whether that be from God or from others or from within, that this is the right decision, that we're okay. We want to feel justified in our intentions. We want to be assured that God will come alongside us and support us in the plans that we have made. And so we raise our hands to the skies and we ask that question, God, what is your will for my life? And then we wait. We wait for the signs. We wait for the trail of breadcrumbs. We grab our Bibles and we give them a little shake and we hope for a magic eight ball answer. We give it a little crack like a cookie and hope a, a good fortune pops out. Now, God has revealed his will to us And through his word, we can be assured of what God wants us to do. Those who are in Christ, we have also received the Holy Spirit to lead us into all righteousness, to help us to be more like Jesus. But you need to understand something. The Bible is not a map or an instruction manual. 
It's not a step-by-step process. Okay, do this and then turn here and then go here and then do this and then this and then this and then you'll arrive at the right place. The Bible's not meant to provide a red light, green light based upon what you want to do. It's not a wedding planner to help you to live out the fairy tale. The Bible is the history of what God is doing to redeem a people for himself. It tells us the story of who God is, what he's like, what his heart is for us, and what he has done in order to gain ours. It's about a relationship. So far, if you notice, as I've talked about themes within the book of of Proverbs, we've focused on friendships, we've focused on marriage, we've focused on leaving a legacy, whether that be with children or with the church. And now when we're talking about planning, I'm not really talking about what does God want you to do for your life and how can you kind of know and navigate and all that stuff, as much as I'm talking about this, a relationship with God. You see, God reveals himself in his word so that we might know him. And in knowing him, our hearts might be changed so that we might give ourselves to him, so that we might be reconciled to God, to live the lives that we were created to live, lives of blessing, lives of joy, the lives that are lived to their fullest with God in his wisdom. It's about a relationship. God didn't give us his word to tell us our fortune like some daily horoscope. He gave us his word to make us wise. We become wise as we learn to see the world and everything else through God's eyes. And the only way we can do that is to have a relationship with him. And in having a relationship with him, we live for his glory and for our joy in him. And so, yes, you can know God's will for your life. You can be assured that that God has a plan for you and you can learn what it is. You can know what decisions he wants you to make and understand the call that he has placed upon your life, but it will not come from some simple, passive, immediate, flip-the-switch sense that we so often want it to come in. We come to understand God's ways by becoming wise. And you grow in wisdom by wholeheartedly seeking God. And so what we're going to see this morning from the book of Proverbs, primarily from this text, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, on guidance and planning for the future, is that you can know God's plan for you. You can know what God wants you to do in any given situation, but it looks a whole lot different than we think. Wise plans are the result of a wise heart. Wise plans are the result of a wise heart. And because God is so nice and so gracious to us, God is even going to provide us with a straightforward three-step process on how we can come to know his will. Now, it's not easy, but it's straightforward. But before we get into those, let's read the passage, Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 9. It says, The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. 
be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, how can we know God's plan for us? Here it is in three straightforward steps. Step number one, the biggest, as always, commit your ways to the Lord. We often think that our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our longings, and our plans, they come from our minds. They come from our reason. They come from a pattern of thinking, or maybe they come from something outside of us. Maybe the influence of our parents or the influence of our culture, the influence of other people around us. But the Bible says that there is something that is far, far deeper at work underneath it all that's leading you, that's compelling you to think the way that you do, to believe what you believe, to feel the way that you feel, and to make the choices that you make. It's at the very core of who we are and is the very seat of our souls, of our conscience, of our personality, of our character. The Bible calls it the heart. That every thought, every action, every belief and longing and desire and plan that you hold to originates from and is fueled by your heart. Notice what it says right there in verses 1 and verse 9. The plans of the heart belong to man. And down in verse 9, the heart of man plans his way. You see, your heart sets the agenda. And your heart is what motivates you to carry that agenda out. It's not anyone or anything else that's doing that. It's on you because that's who you are. And even if you'd say, you know what? My plan is just to go along for the ride, just to do what everyone else wants to do. Well, guess what? That's still your agenda. Your agenda is just to kind of sit idly by and let everybody else make all the decisions. That's still your heart. That's still your purpose. That's still your plan. And that belongs to you. And because it belongs to you, you are responsible for it. They are the plans of a man's heart. But that's not just true for big ticket items that we labor and think and plan and strategize over what we are going to do. It's also true for the seemingly insignificant in the moment and almost instinctual responses that we make to everyday life. They come from your heart as well. You see, it's not just the, what motivates you to make that decision about taking that job or marrying that person. It's also that blood-boiling anger you feel when someone disagrees with you sharply or that disgusted look on your face when your kid brings that thing into the house or that sickening feeling in the pit of your stomach when you realize what has just happened or that sweaty palm anxiety that makes you want to turn and run away from whatever's right in front of you. You see, those seemingly habitual or instinctual feelings, those thoughts, those facial expressions, those responses are the result of something getting in the way of the plans of your heart. When you don't get the things that you want, you think, you believe, you desire, or you expect. 
And those thoughts, those feelings, those desires, they come from your heart and they are not neutral. You see, we'd like to think that most of our choices, most of the fruit of our heart are neutral. It's sort of passive, in between, sort of a gray area, morally neutral, or because it's not morally sinful in our minds, it's then morally pure. Now, we'll, we'll say, okay, there's this category that's over here on the left, and that belongs to like those, those premeditatedly sinful things, right? Like murder and theft and adultery and bearing false witness. Those things where you're intentional and purposeful for towards sin. Okay, that, those are negative things. Those are impure. And then over here on the far, far right, you've got these decisions that are for the Lord, which you consider to be like purposefully, premeditatedly good. Like I chose to get up and come to church this morning, or I want to go work in a soup kitchen, or I, I was intentional to pray for this person or, or for my family or lead my family in devotions, whatever it might be. And then in the middle is this huge swath of morally neutral decisions. Could be big ones like taking a job or moving my family or a countless number of small, seemingly insignificant decisions that we think don't really matter one way or another. What should I wear? Should I go to that movie? Should I smoke that cigar or drink that glass of wine with my meal? Should I spend time with that, uh, those people or that group or, or just any countless number of other decisions? The list could go on and on and on and on and on. And, and we treat these like they're gray matters. We treat them like they're morally neutral. Because they're not over here in this category where they're overtly immoral, therefore our logic is they must be pure. It must be fine. We can just do whatever we want. But that gray, that that thinking that those things are gray, it has a tendency to bleed over into the black and white. And what it does is it makes everything gray, right? We, it's a little confusing, a little unclear, and we just kind of hope that everything is morally neutral. But the truth is, there are no gray areas. Look at verse 2 there. It says, all the ways of man, that's all of the plans of his heart, are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. In chapter 17, verse 3, Proverbs tells us the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. In chapter 21, verse 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, we have a tendency to justify ourselves. You know, I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. God's given me a sense of peace about it. Start seeing signs in things or believing that we've received some word from the Lord. We begin to to interpret every opportunity that presents itself to us as basically the hand of God, an open door that we just kind of need to passively kind of walk through. But what we're really doing is seeing our own ways as pure. That every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. You see, behind all of those gray areas, all of those seemingly neutral decisions is your heart. Your plans, 
your beliefs, your thoughts, your motives, your desires. And God sees them. And he knows the true motivation behind every one of them. And God will weigh the heart perfectly. And guess what he won't find? Any shade of gray. Verse 4 reminds us, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has a purpose in everything. Not just the big things, but every situation you encounter, every trial, every blessing, every decision, every moment of your life, every one and everything in it has a purpose to weigh our hearts, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, God weighs our hearts not because he's cruel, not because he's vindictive or just kind of a malicious tyrant or because God doesn't really know what's in our hearts and so he has to test in order to find out. That's not why God does it. God weighs our hearts so that we might come to understand what is truly in them. He brings about situations and circumstances and tests and decisions in your life to be able to test your heart to see what lies within them. Those who are wise are going to see that and they will agree with him. But those who are foolish will continue to see their ways as right and pure until the day of trouble. And let me ask you this. Are you able to accurately identify the motives of your heart? When faced with any given situation, do you know what's really pulling you there and what lies underneath that pull? An honest answer would say, no, not really. Okay, good. It's a good place to start because then we can move forward, right? But we have to keep this in mind. Verse four is not just a warning for them, for the wicked. It's a warning for us. We need to make no mistake about it. You will be held accountable for how the Lord weighs your heart. Verse 5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Now, we do not want to be arrogant. We don't want to remain there. We don't want to be foolish. Let's not assume that our ways are right and pure because that is an abomination. That is abhorrent in the eyes of the Lord. And he's going to deal with it. And so what are we to do then? Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. That word work there in verse 3 is referring to the ways that we saw in verse 2. And so he's saying, commit all of your ways to the Lord. Not some of them, not this one or that one, but you can keep all of these to yourself. He says, commit all of your ways to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? I'm committed. I'm committed to Christ. I'm committed to the Lord. Okay, well, we've got to deal with that definition of your definition of commitment and God's definition of commitment because, see, they're different. Now, if commitment were a rock, bear with me on this, but if commitment were a rock, the average commitment of ours is about the size of a baseball. If you're really, really, really committed, well, let's just say it's the size of a beach ball. You see, we want our commitment to be movable, 
We want to be able to take it, pick it up, move it, set it down where we want, pick it up again, move it again. We even want to have the ability to chuck it, if necessary, right back in someone's face. Hence the size of a baseball. A little harder to do that with a rock the size of a beach ball, right? But nevertheless, we want it to be movable. And, and quite honestly, we would probably prefer, if we're totally honest with ourselves, for that rock to be made out of something soft, like sandstone or shale, so that it can be broken. But that's not what that word means. That word commit there, it gives the image of a huge stone that is rolled to or rolled upon. And once it fits into its place, once it is positioned where it's meant to go, there's no moving it. You cannot, it's there. It's stuck. You're not breaking it either. It's there fully committed to its position. That kind of commitment is not half-hearted. It's not fickle. It can't be broken or thrown back into God's face. It's the idea that we submit our entire life's actions to God, committing ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. And when you do that, your plans will be established. And here's why. Because your plans are no longer your own. Your plans are God's plans. And when your plans vary with God's plans, guess what? Your plans submit to the Lord. You go along with what he wants. And that's why the proverb says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And when you pray the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What you're saying there, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my heart as it is in heaven. You know, I think that many times the reason why we agonize so much over decisions is because we are half-hearted towards God. We, we haven't fully committed our ways to him. Yeah, we've, we, we've given him part, but not all. We don't really know him. We haven't really grown in wisdom. And so it's no surprise to us that we're confused and a little bit worried. Now, we're willing to give God our pebble, but we haven't truly fixed that stone upon him. Instead, we want God to fully commit himself to our ways. We don't want to fully commit our way, ourselves to God's ways. We want God to fully commit himself to ours. But guess what? It just doesn't work that way. If we want to know that our plans will be established, we must fully commit ourselves to him. And that's a big deal, right? You're probably wondering to yourself, okay, what does that look like? How do I know? Like, you got to give me something to work with. Commit myself, commit my ways to the Lord. Yeah, great. Give me a handle, Chet. How does that look? Well, it just so happens, Proverbs gives that to us in five sort of sub-steps, okay? So again, God's, God's really gracious to us. He gives us wisdom so that we can test our commitment to the Lord and know whether or not our plans are truly for him. Step number one, distrust yourself. Jiminy crickets, did Disney get it wrong? Rather than assuming that all our ways are right and pure, God calls us to distrust our own hearts and our own minds. Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 16, verse 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
Proverbs 28, verse 16. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but whoever walks in wisdom will be delivered. Or to put it positively, chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So that's step number one, distrust yourself. Step number two, look to God. It's no real surprise here. A wise man knows who is truly wise and who's not. And so a wise man looks to God. Remember the very reason why we started this series on Proverbs or why we have Proverbs in the first place. Chapter one, verses one through seven, where it says the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. Here's why we have these Proverbs. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. So we don't move past it, right? The one who understands to obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is why we've been told over and over again in Proverbs that those who are truly wise, they cherish wisdom above all else. They see how much more valuable than anything that this world could possibly offer. And so we seek it. We seek it from the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 24, the discerning sets his face towards wisdom. But the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. I want to... I want you to think about it for a minute. What do you set your face upon? When you go through your week, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to go to work, you're going to set your face towards something. What are you setting it towards? Are you setting it actively towards God's wisdom? Or in all earnestness, are you putting it towards the ends of the earth? Or chapter 29, verse 18, where there's no prophetic Vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. And that prophetic vision there is not some new word from the Lord, it's parallel with the law, and so it's God's revealed word. When our hearts and minds are empty of God's word, we cast off restraint and fall into curses. But when we hide God's word in our heart, we are less apt to sin against him. Why do you read the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Is it just to fulfill your Christian duty? Tim Chester in the book Total Church says, we don't read the Bible simply to fill our minds. We read the Bible to change our hearts. When you come to the Bible, you don't just read God's word. What we do is we allow God's word to read us. Do you read the Bible to fulfill a duty or do you read the Bible to be changed? Or maybe I should say the opposite. Do you avoid reading the Bible because you don't really want to change? Something for us to consider. So we distrust ourselves. We look to God. A third step from Proverbs to test our commitment to the Lord is in how we seek guidance from others. 
Chapter 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Chapter 15, verse 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Chapter 20, verse 18, plans are established by counsel. 24, verse 6, in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. Now, when it's talking about counselors, Proverbs means wise, godly counselors. These are people who fear the Lord and live in the fear of the Lord, and you can tell it makes a difference on their lives. This is not just kind of taking the shotgun potpourri approach that we so often take when we receive counsel. So we've got this decision that's coming my way, and so what I start doing is I start throwing it out there to just about anybody, right? Throw it out to grandma, throw it out to my parents, I throw it out to all of my buddies from school, I throw it out to some coworkers, I throw it out to my neighbor, but I'm just kind of looking for a mixture, and what I get is a collective of answers that's just all over the map. It's a potpourri of answers, right? And so what do I do with that? Well, I'm just kind of like, well, nobody can seem to agree. I'll just pick what I want right? That's so often what we do. Or maybe we'll go out, we'll ask the questions, right? We'll, we'll kind of get counsel from other people and then we don't listen to it at all. We just do whatever we want to anyway, right? What he's talking about here, a wise person knows wise people, knows people who just give God-fearing answers, who know the truth, who love you enough to tell you the truth, and a wise person actually listens to what they have to say. And so here's the deal. If you can't be told no, if you can't receive a rebuke or a reproof, if you don't allow people to exhort and speak into your life, you just kind of keep yourself distant from that, the Bible says you are proud and foolish, right? We've got to be told no from time to time. It's the only way we grow. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Most of the time they're right. Most of the time we're wrong. Those who are committed to God's ways seek godly counsel. Friends, that ought to be more true of us in the church than anywhere else. Because we have the truth. We know the truth. We know what God wants and expects from us from his word. And so we need to be communicating about these things and opening ourselves up to really receive and respond to God's word. I know, but I've, I've got to say this because it's, it's so uncommon today. We, we live in an age where people are just, they, they think that they're self-sufficient. They think that they've got all the answers. We just kind of go through life doing our own thing. We don't really open anything up to other people until we've like already made the decision in our own minds and just kind of like what we're really doing is informing them of what we're going to do. We're not really seeking counsel. We're not really seeking what the Lord wants from us. Phyllis was having a conversation with a Hindu neighbor of ours this week about divorce. You see, we used to have this neighbor who uh, was running into some marital difficulty and this, this Hindu neighbor was just kind of checking up. How's that going? And she was talking about how in her community back in India, divorce was rare. And it was so rare because what happened was that people would get involved. The entire community would care about that relationship and would be there to help work on it. And so if you were running into marital difficulty, people knew about it. And they're like, they're trying to watch your kids. They're helping you to try to work on things. They're reminding you, look, marriage is not perfect. Marriage is hard work. You know, it's worth sticking through. And so the divorce rate is is 
Very, very slight. But she said, here, none of that happens. And divorce is a big deal. Like she was shocked that people would make such huge, life-impacting decisions with no counsel whatsoever. And in that situation, guys, let's be honest here. That Hindu community was putting the church of God in America to shame. It shouldn't be that way. A couple of other indicators that you are truly committed to the Lord. Step number four, that you actively plan good and not evil. That this is just sort of the byproduct of your life. It just kind of comes natural to you. Chapter 14, verse 22 says, uh, Do not they go astray who devise evil, but those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. Or chapter 15, verse 26, The thoughts of the wicked are abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Those who are truly committed to the ways of the Lord, they think about good things. They speak in a way that gives grace and gives life. They devise good things for other people. People with this kind of heart, with that kind of proclivity, they tend to make very, very wise decisions. They just have a natural disposition towards good. So they tend to make good and wise decisions. And then step number five, they are diligent to perform them. Those who are committed to the ways of the Lord do not stop at words or just good intentions. They actively commit themselves to God's ways. They are intentional and purposeful. They are active, not idle. They are hardworking, not slothful. They are proactive rather than reactive. And if we do that, you know, if we distrust our own motives and seek the Lord and the affirmation of godly counsel, if we are intentional to actively plan good and diligent to perform it, then these are indicators of a heart that is truly committed to the Lord. And if our heart is truly committed to God in, his, in this way, we can take some measure of assurance that our plans are wise, because, not because we know the future, but because our hearts are wise. And so that is the big step number one in knowing God's plan for your life. Commit your ways to the Lord. But in verses six through eight, we're given a second step in knowing God's plan for us. So step number one, commit your ways to the Lord. Step number two, live in light of your salvation. You know, many of us have tried by our own efforts to commit our ways to the Lord and we failed. We've tried to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to live better, to do better, to be better, to live in a way that gains the approval of God, but it hasn't worked. And by itself, our resolve is not enough, which is why we're given verses six through eight. It says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. But friends, that's not our love. That's not our faithfulness, right? We can't do enough good. We can't pay for our sin by love and good deeds. We can never do enough good to 
overturn the infinite offense that we have made against an infinite God. And so this sin covering covenant love and faithfulness has to come from someone other than us. And we know from the rest of scripture that it does. At the right time, the one true and holy God of the universe who made all there is, who made you and me, sent forth his beloved son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to live a perfect life, to live a life that you and I can never live, a life that was fully committed to the ways of the Lord. And he gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin. He rose again three days later so that we who are in him might receive new life so that we might live our lives in and through him. And that if we turn away from our sin and we turn towards him in repentance and faith, his sacrifice on behalf of our iniquities covers us. It is his covenant love and his faithfulness that makes us new creations so that we can live for him. Friends, that's the salvation that we have received in Christ. God has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. And as a product of that, we are now received the Holy Spirit who enables us to live in the fear of God and to turn away from evil. Friends, this doesn't end with just God saving us from the consequences of our sin. So often, we practically try to stop there. Well, I'm forgiven. Well, God doesn't hold that against me. Well, I'm not going to be in hell when I die, so I'm good. But God doesn't just save us from the consequences of our sins. God saves us from our sinful hearts. And as a result, we begin to live differently. Since our sins have been covered by the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ, we find ourselves now longing to display the same steadfast love, the same covenantal faithfulness in our lives, a covenantal love and faithfulness that is willing to cover over the offenses of sin. When someone sins against us, we don't hold that against them. We don't just continue in bitterness and hatred. We cover those offenses. We seek to help one another to be redeemed from sin. We come around and fight with each other, not against one another, but for one another in the fight against sin. This is a love that is marked by commitment, a love that is marked by sacrifice, a love that is marked by forgiveness and restoration. We now live in the fear of the Lord, A fear that trembles at his holiness and his power, but is also a fear that loves and adores and reveres him for his loving kindness, for his goodness, his mercy, and his grace towards us. This is a fear that casts out all other fears. So much of our sin is because we fear other things and we we head in that direction. But a fear in the Lord, it actually turns uh, turns us away from evil. We turn away from evil because we see it for what it is now. We hate it because God hates it, because we love what God loves. And so we flee from evil and we pursue what is good. We don't remain in it. We don't toy around with it. Our life is now marked by our relationship to the Lord. And nothing else. Verse 7 says, when that happens, when a man's ways please the Lord, and it's only through Christ that that can happen, 
that he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Because we now have peace with God, our lives are marked by peace. We strive for peace. We are now peacemakers, working for reconciliation and restoration, even with our enemies. And we do this because we have new motivations. We have a new heart. We're not living for ourselves any longer, but Christ, for whom our sakes, died and was raised. Verse 8 says that this man whose ways please the Lord, he doesn't live for the stuff of this world, but the goal of his life is righteousness. It says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues of anything that this world has to offer with injustice. Friends, what is the motivation of your life? When you give yourself over to anything, what is the root cause behind it? What is really, is it this desire for righteousness or great revenues from the world? Success, popularity, money, seeing your ambitions, whatever they are, fulfilled. Those whose hearts have been changed, who live in light of their salvation, their desire, their chief end is to be like Christ. They want to be righteous. That matters more to them. They have more with that righteousness, even if they have nothing else, than if they have great revenue with all the injustices and, and sin and evil in the world. Chapter 11, verse 3 adds, the integrity of the upright guides them. They're guided by their integrity, but crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Chapter 12, verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous are just. They long for justice. They long to have just thoughts, but the counsel of the wicked are deceitful. Chapter 12, verse 20, deceit is in the hearts of those who devise evil. But those who plan peace have joy. Or chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. This is talking about love, faithfulness, forgiveness, righteousness, the fear of the Lord, peace, justice, integrity, uprightness, joy, and humility. This is what it means to live in light of our salvation. This is what happens when the gospel truly comes to bear upon our hearts. Friends, do not let anyone else sell you short. There are people that will tell you that all you really need to do is accept Jesus and your life is just going to be better. That you can basically do what you want to do, live the way you want to live. Christ will meet your every need and guess what happens? You get to go to heaven when you die. The Bible says a whole lot more than that. It ignores the fact that the true gospel changes hearts. The true gospel is the power for salvation. The true gospel changes your wants. It changes your desires. And it helps you to see your true and eternal need in Jesus Christ. And it then calls you to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. It says, be who you now are in Jesus. If your version of salvation doesn't result in you growing into the likeness of Christ, that's not salvation. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 reminds us of this. The Apostle Paul says this, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Right? In the futility of their minds. They've been darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. They've become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self that belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. Friends, we were created to image God, to live in his likeness. Our sin shattered that, made it impossible. But what Christ has done for us is renewed us so that we are remade into the image of God, that we can bear his image and and his likeness once more in ways that we never could before. And Paul proves it by saying for the next two and a half chapters, here's what that does in your life. This is how it affects the way that you speak. This is is how it affects the way that you live. This is how it affects the way that you relate to each other. It changes everything. It changes everything. And the more you live in light of your salvation the more you will know what God wants from you in any given situation because Christ-likeness is a bigger goal to you than any earthly good. And so how can we make wise plans that we can be assured that the Lord is pleased in? Well, step number one, we commit our ways to the Lord. Step number two, We live in light of our salvation. And when we've done both of those, carefully, prayerfully, in the context of godly counsel, then step number three, we rest in the sovereignty of God. Our hearts can lead us to make all sorts of plans, but God is sovereign over all of them. Now, if you notice, this whole section is sandwiched in between two very, very similar statements. Verse number one, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue, that is the declaration of what will actually happen, is from the Lord. Verse nine, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And what that's saying, in other words, is that only the steps, the only steps that he's actually going to take are the ones that the Lord himself establishes. Even in between them, there in verse four, it says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. We may sin, we may err, we may make mistakes, but, but God doesn't. The wicked are not outside of his sovereign control. But this is not the only place in Proverbs where we see God's sovereignty being put on display. At the very end of the chapter, in verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 21. 
Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Chapter 20, verse 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can he understand his way? Chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart. That is the most sovereign, the most powerful person there, alive. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Chapter 21, verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel will avail against the Lord. Friends, the sovereignty of God is meant to be a great comfort to us because even when our plans, the plans of our heart, seem to be unraveling, even when we're surrounded by wicked and evil men who long to harm us, even when things seem to be falling apart or maybe they have absolutely been decimated, even when it seems like every law is being cast against us or when we are confused or in doubt and all the wisdom and understanding and counsel of the world seems to be completely in contradiction to what the Lord is asking of us, then we can take great hope because the Lord knows what he is doing and there is good purpose behind everything he does. Nothing is an accident. Nothing is a mistake. Nothing is outside of God's understanding, God's wisdom, God's foreknowledge. It's all according to his plan. When I think about the unexpected sovereignty of God over all things, I can't help but be reminded of Joseph. And in fact, I was reminded again this week as I was reading through Psalm 105. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, Joseph was one of the Israelites. He's a son of, of the line of Abraham. And he's, he was a younger son. But God gave him two visions where his family bowed down to him. And like any younger brother would, of course, he went and he bragged about it to his brothers, right? Of course, they didn't take very kindly to that. They didn't really like him much anyway. So they basically beat him up and, and sold him into slavery. Now you think about Joseph for a minute. God has given him visions. God has promised him, look, Joseph, your whole family's gonna bow down to you. And where does he end up? He ends up as a slave and as a prisoner. If there's anyone in scripture that may have had cause to question God's sovereignty, it was Joseph. But here's how Psalm 105 comments on God's plan for Joseph. It says, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had already sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until all that God said had come to pass, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. I was amazed by that statement. Suddenly it clicked with me. How many times in your life have you been told over and over and over again of the promises of God and you've looked at your life, you've looked at the situation and you've said to yourself, God, what on earth are you doing? Is that just me? Am I the only person in this room that's done that? It goes on to say, the king sent and released him. 
The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and all the ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Friends, Joseph could not have possibly seen how God could use his pain and what seemed like an utterly failed promise for anything good. But through it, God delivered a nation. And from that nation would come a Savior who would give eternal life to all who would believe. Get this. We are here right now, right here today, because God used Joseph's chains for good. That's amazing. And so when it comes to the plans of our hearts, We don't need to fear any and every bad thing is going to happen to us. We don't need to overanalyze every decision to the nth degree that needs to be made. We don't need to question whether or not we somehow missed God's best or lament and bemoan and be discontented with what the Lord has for us. No, we pray, we explore We weigh the options, we look to God's word, and we follow what he wants for us. We we listen to godly counsel, we submit to God's revealed will, we strive to honor God's character and purposes and make every decision for his glory, for his good rather than our own. And then we choose wisely and we wait to see what the Lord does. And if he gives you what your desire. Uh, your, your desires are consistent with who God is and he gives that to you, that's a good thing. But you know, if God doesn't give you what you want, and that's a good thing too. But either way, we can rest in the sovereignty of God. You may not believe him, but what he has given you or maybe what he has not given you is for your best to lead you to himself, to help you to live your life to its fullest, the life that he created you to live. A life that regardless of what may come is wholeheartedly for him. And a wise heart rests in his sovereignty. You know, I talk to kids on the ball field that a good sportsman plays well, wins well, and loses well. The same is true for a heart that truly trusts in the Lord. Your life is going to be full of wins and losses, RBIs and errors. But the Lord brings them all about to reveal to the crowd and to yourself who it is you truly play for. You see, a wise heart trusts him. A wise heart plays for him. And so do you want to know God's will for your life? I mean, do you want to be assured that you plan wisely? Then you commit your ways to the Lord. You live in light of your salvation and rest in the sovereignty of God. Because wise plans are the result of a wise heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good reminder that we are not God and that you are. 
And that your purpose in life is not to just tell us what to do in any given moment so that we can passively just move from one step to the next. But you have structured our lives in such a way with the blessings and the challenges and everything in between to lead our hearts towards yourself so that our hearts might be fully committed to you so that we might truly understand our salvation and live in light of our salvation and to trust in your good, wise, and powerful purposes in our lives. And God, we we want to make wise plans. We want to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. But we're reminded yet again that it doesn't come through this mystical idea of searching for your will, but it comes through seeking to know your heart. And we thank you that it's possible for us to have wise hearts through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.